I'll lead us in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your life-giving word. Speak it into our hearts and minds now, uh, that it may shape our thoughts and the actions of our hands, and that indeed we might speak it to one another in the praise of your name, now and always. Amen. Well, do uh, have Luke 23 open in front of you, and we will uh, have it up on the screen at a few points along the way. But as we came to come to this Easter weekend uh, this morning, uh, it struck me that there are moments in time that define us. Uh, I'm talking about as groups of people. And so uh, I thought of Captain Cook's arrival in Botany Bay. Uh, I thought of the D-Day landings in World War II. And of course, more recently, 9-11. And now we're here today on this Friday, not a normal day that we would meet together, nearly 2,000 years uh, since it first was called good, uh, to remember and give thanks for the unjust execution of an innocent man. It seems extraordinary, isn't it? that it should be called that or that we should remember it in this way. Because on the surface, the crucifixion of Jesus is crushing. Uh, When you hear it read, how does it make you feel? Do you feel angry or devastated? Uh, How should we feel? How should we respond? And many of us know these words only too well. To some of us, they'll be less familiar, but none of us, none of us should tire of hearing them again. For this is, above all other contenders, the defining moment of all time. It defines you and me, but not just us, every person who will ever live, and it reveals the true character of us all and our greatest need and the depths of God's mercy to meet it. And so while the events of this day were a travesty, their all-surpassing place in history means when we respond to them appropriately, we may be comforted. We may be confident and we may be certain of where our life stands with our God, the great giver of life, who gives true life. I'm going to do this a a couple of times with you this morning. Imagine you were there. You blink a few times as you come up for air. The crowd is bustling around you and the narrow lanes of Jerusalem Uh, You see a man carrying a cross ahead. He's not Jesus. His name is Simon of Cyrene. There were women following too. You're walking amongst them. Your ears are filled with their cries, cries of grief. And then he turns and Jesus says, as he says in verse 28, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen 
when it's dry. What does he mean? You blink a few times, you're no longer imagining, you're here today in 2023. So what is Jesus saying? And to answer that, we need to remember that the way of the cross is a terrible path. Uh, For Jesus at this point, it means his suffering and death is now only a short time away. But the weight of the cross has spanned his whole life. It is the reason for his life. Triggered when the first man and woman turned their backs on God and the same treachery spread across all of humanity, this is the path that he willingly walked. And when he set his face to Jerusalem, And we read that back in chapter 9, verse 51. And when he predicted to the disciples that he would go there to suffer and die, as in places like Luke 17, he knew that this, this was the hour that he had come for. Now as it arrives, his words pinpoint what this hour truly means. It is the hour of judgment, of his judgment, What he's saying to these women uh, is this. If you think this is bad, what's about to happen to him is bad, and it is. How much worse will it be when Jerusalem herself and all humanity with her is judged? Jesus is innocent and about to experience God's judgment. But that experience will be a forerunner and confirmation of the judgment that faces all people. Here now, Jerusalem is guilty of crucifying her Lord and God and all humanity. We are guilty with her. How certain and much worse would it be then to have God's judgment fall on us? It would be better, as as is said, uh, to have never lived. Uh, That those who experience it will wish that it would end for them quickly. For the way of the cross reveals, it reveals we are guilty before God and ourselves on a path that leads to judgment. Now I want you to imagine that you're there again. You blink a few times, you come up for air, the laneways have opened out, you're outside the city wall now. You stand on the place they call the skull and they lift him up. Jesus is crucified in the middle on a wooden cross, two criminals on either side. He speaks, but you can't hear him. You see the soldiers dividing his clothes at his feet, but you can't hear for all the shouting. The rulers over them call out, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And then it rings out from the soldiers. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then you catch one of the criminals emboldened say, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And then you hear another voice mocking. Ha, let's see him save himself now. And it's a voice you recognise. It's your own voice. 
shocked, you blink a few times, you, you're no longer imagining anymore, you're back. What does what you have seen mean? It means Jesus was crucified to take the judgment we deserve to give us the forgiveness we could never earn. Everything Luke tells us uh, here points us to what is going on. I mean, there's the surface and just reading things on the surface, but it's, it's a very thin film and you can see right through it as Luke uh, records his gospel. The criminals, he died among the guilty, like the guilty, just like the prophet Isaiah said hundreds of years before, just as God intended he would. And what were the words that were on his lips as they crucified him? Verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. How easy do you find it to forgive someone? Maybe you don't find it that hard. What about when they hurt you and you feel it in the deep places? What about when you're accused of something and slandered uh, of something that you didn't do? What about when you have to live and bear the cost when you don't deserve to? How easy do you find it to forgive when that is you? And here is Jesus, hanging on Rome's most shameful and excruciating instrument of death. But what he says here explains everything that is taking place. He is dying willingly so that we might be forgiven. He is dying at the hands of men and women, Roman and Jew. The whole world, we have his blood on our hands, playing out with his life the one who is God, that is, playing out in his life our attitude and treatment of God that we hear of again and again throughout the whole uh, testimony of the Bible, wanting him dead, out of the way, and therefore with no claims over us. And at the same time, what we read here pinpoints our greatest need, that we need forgiveness. And that is what he asks of his heavenly father. Forgive them. But when he says they do not know what they are doing, is he saying those who crucified him aren't guilty of their actions? He's not saying that. What he's saying is that they couldn't begin to fathom the travesty that they are committing. They couldn't begin to understand the treachery of killing their God and maker. As Jesus hangs on the cross with his executioners around him, it's a picture of the core of our condition. It's how God finds us. It's like an x-ray that sees what's otherwise hidden, that left to ourselves we would go to any length to wipe away God's claims over us, even to the extent of killing him to silence those claims. And every one of us is accountable. Each one of us will have to give an account before God. Each one of us has to stand before the judge and retell how we treated him. And so it's not a pleasant picture, is it? 
this place where we have begun today, treason, suppressing the truth about God, placing ourselves on the throne that belongs to him and left as things were. It is a picture that would end with us found guilty and punished. But what does Jesus want for us? What does he seek through his death? It is none other than forgiveness. Jesus is here taking the judgment we deserve to give us the forgiveness we could never earn. Now, as telling as Jesus' words are at this moment, is his silence in the face of those who mock him. If they'd ever been uncertain before, it seems they weren't any longer. Clearly they'd heard his claims to be God's Messiah, God's King. Their accusations give them away. And just as telling is their observation that he saved others. They don't deny that. And if he did save others, why on earth are they killing him? What crime is there in that? But their words spoken in mockery tell more than they themselves meant. They mock, but their words are true. God's Messiah, God's King, does not save himself. He saved others. He saves us by putting our needs before his own. And this is... No terrible turn of events, an unexpected outcome of what was otherwise his plan. He goes willingly. He is in control. He is putting his life on the line, in fact, losing it. And so we should never be mistaken. Jesus, Jesus wasn't held on the cross by nails, but by God's love. None of those who mock understand it. What they say reveals more about us than him. Look after number one, they say. The Messiah, God's king, we know you'd have the power to do that and could use it at the blink of an eye. But Jesus, he does exactly the opposite. Now, do you remember the Queensland floods of 2011? Uh, we heard harrowing reports that January and of lives lost. One life was that of 13-year-old Jordan Rice. He, his mother and his younger 10-year-old brother, they were on the roof of a car in the middle of the torrent in Toowoomba. A, a rescuer, a man, tied a rope around himself to wade out to them. Uh, when he got to Jordan, Jordan's words were, save my brother first. And the rescuer did what he was asked. But before he could get back to them, Jordan and his mother were gone. Jordan Rice didn't look after number one. He gave his life so his brother could live. And Jesus uses his power and authority to serve us, not himself, 
He gave his life and suffered the judgment we deserve on the cross so we might have life. That's why he's silent. He's not abandoning this plan. What else need he say to his mockers? His actions speak loud enough. But there is one last conversation. A conversation between Jesus and the two criminals, one either side. The first criminal speaks and acts just like everyone else. Save yourself, he says, and save me too while you're at it. Look after number one. But the other one, he sees Jesus clearly. And he says, we are punished justly for we are getting out what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. The innocent one dies the death of criminals among criminals. The one who should be honoured is put to shame. But he allows it in order to rescue the true criminals and to take away our shame. Jesus doesn't save himself because he is working to a greater plan to save us. I imagine, again, you were there. This is the last time. You blink a few times, it's the sixth hour. It's midday and the sun in the middle of the day disappears and darkness falls. Even though it's the middle of the day, it's the wrong time of the year for an eclipse, but it's as if creation itself is signalling a judgement like no other, a judgement long promised by God has arrived. Why is it happening now? And you don't find out till much later. But later you hear the curtain of the temple of God in Jerusalem is torn down the middle. No hands touched it. It's as if the temple itself is passing out of importance, has been superseded, and now God meets humanity in a new place. Why is this happening? And then Jesus calls out, this time you can hear him. He is louder and he says in the words of verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last. To your left stands a Roman centurion. And as he looks at the darkened sky and as he reflects on Jesus' last words, he speaks and again, they are words spoken at this defining moment, which mean much more than the speaker themselves could have known. Surely this was an innocent man. You turn with the rest of the crowd to walk back to the city. And as you pass by a group of men and women together, their faces are etched with grief you wonder if you, they knew him in a way better than you. And as you walk, Jesus' last words echo in your mind. They sound familiar. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Aren't they the words of Psalm 31? What was that about again? 
One of King David's psalms of one who, even though he came face to face with the gravest of danger, even death itself, trusted himself to God as his deliverer. That's the last time you have to imagine you're back now here in 2023 for good. And you might be thinking, there seems to be mixed messages in that last part of Jesus' life. I mean, the Old Testament has prepared us to see the darkness and the tearing of the temple curtain as profound signs of God's judgment. So how could Jesus, uh, God let Jesus suffer any judgment if he's innocent? That other theme that's been running through again and again. It just seems unjust. but the answer is closer to home than you might expect. He's suffering our judgment. God himself dies on the cross to bring the forgiveness that we could never earn for ourselves. He dies so we might live. He dies so that the greatest and gravest need in our lives of life itself may be met in the face of the coming judgment. And so those words, those words of Psalm 31, words that speak of trust in God and of depending on God, even when the circumstances call that dependability into question, Jesus lived them. He died trusting his father that he would be raised to life again and shown not just to be innocent, but to have won innocence for all of us who accept it. When we were imagining ourselves back there, we didn't finish, uh, we didn't finish off the conversation between the two criminals and Jesus uh, at the end. The second criminal, he knew where he stood. He knew with a clarity that we could all do with. I'm guilty. I'm getting what my actions deserve, but I can see you're the king of God's kingdom and I'll trust myself to you. He didn't do anything to deserve Jesus' forgiveness and yet Jesus answers him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Dramatic music plays. <laughs> he received forgiveness from Jesus at the very time Jesus was winning forgiveness for us all. And so as we're here today and as we call this Good Friday, we live in a world that has been changed by the cross forever, by the death of Jesus. And we don't need to ask whether God is willing to forgive us we don't need to ask whether he's able to forgive us. We don't need to wait to know any of these things. Jesus' death and God raising him from the dead on Easter Sunday means we live in the days of God's waiting. His patience with us to respond like the second criminal. He is waiting for us to trust him. And many of us have. 
and praise God that he's brought us together today. We're a church, not because the Anglican church bought some land and put a building on it. We're a church because Jesus died on the cross. We're his church because God himself become a man, though innocent, willingly experienced our judgment. So we might even now experience God's forgiveness. And so this Easter weekend, the first Easter, it is the defining moment in history where we see ourselves truly above all else in need of God's forgiveness and wonderfully able to receive it. Does that comfort you today? I hope it does. To know God and know the forgiveness of God and the love of God in the face of the deserved and just judgment of God, that is the greatest experience any of us can ever enjoy. And even as we watched on today, so as to speak, did you notice Jesus was in control, wasn't he? Every step of the way, just like we sang in Together Time. He comforted the grieving women when he could have been absorbed with his own coming pain. He remained on the cross when he could have released himself and the armies of heaven with a word. And he spoke words of certainty to one thief when he could have spoken judgment and rebuke on the other. The comfort, the confidence and certainty Good Friday brings that God offers each one of us, that he invites us to accept and that so many of us have, that shapes us each day, every day. But he is in control every step of the way, come what may. And it is a mighty work of our mighty God. And so there is, no, there is no greater gift you can give another person in this life than to point them to the eternal life to come. For we are people who know the God who has so gifted us, has dealt judgment a fatal blow so that we can live confident in his forgiveness. And one day very soon, be with Jesus in paradise. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we do thank you for this day and for the Lord Jesus who would go this way, the way of the cross, suffering death that we might live. Transform our hearts and minds, we pray, and continue to do that mighty work in us, that we might live dependent upon you, confident in you, that through Jesus you are delivering us. And Heavenly Father, may the Lord Jesus return soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come that we may be with you in paradise. Amen.